Go ahead and turn in your Bibles, if you will, to 1 Samuel chapter 24. We're going to finish up. We're debating whether or not to take advantage of this wonderful time as we've moved into the, this facility, this building, and take advantage of kind of the, the reboot or replanting of our church, just kind of how we're viewing this. And um, we want to continue to do that, but at the same time, we realize that we kind of need to finish or we'd like to finish up the series on the book of Samuel. So we're going to be doing that over the next few weeks, and then we'll, we have a couple more series planned after that. Um, the, the short-term plan right now is after this to, to have a few messages focusing on some of the vision, values, the mission of the church, but then to look at who Jesus is in his miracles and his parables uh, to, to get a vision of who Jesus is, because that's what the church is founded on, is, is Jesus Christ. So we're going to look at some of his parables and miracles, and then hopefully, Lord willing, after that, we'll be going into the book of Romans sometime next year. So um, we won't do Martin Lloyd-Jones and spend six years going through it, but hopefully sometime next year we'll be getting the book of Romans, and then after that, uh, probably for almost a year, go through that. So anyway, with some breaks in between. So um, that's kind of the plan. That's what we're doing. That's where we're at right now. So um, thank you if you're with us. We had been a couple months back going through the book of Samuel, working through it, preaching through it passage by passage, chapter by chapter. So this now we pick back up again for the last four weeks or so um, in Samuel 24. So um, as you're turning there, I was just thinking about how easy it is for all of us to kind of take the, the default method in life, to, to kind of, by default, try to take the quickest way out of a jam or kind of find the quickest way around things. And I remember once when I was a teenager, much to my shame, um, I got stuck in traffic outside of D.C. I used to commute to D.C. Um, when I first started my job uh, down in, right outside of the city, and I got stuck in heavy traffic, and I was going crazy, and I felt like, what in the world? There's no reason for all this traffic, and so I saw that the shoulder was clear, and as a foolish 18-year-old, uh, and, and by the way, if you are just getting your driver's license, this is the dumbest thing you can do. Um, not only is it a hazard to your, your own self, but hazard to other people and, and the like, but I unfortunately went in the shoulder for I don't know, a few miles past all the traffic and illegally rode down the shoulder. But, but that's kind of the default tendency for all of us, right? Is to, to want to get out of things, right? To want to find the quickest way out, the easiest way out, the path of least resistance. Hopefully none of, none of you have done that before. Um, but, you know, how about you? How do you decide what to do when things get tough? How about um, when you face persecution or difficulties or hardships? How, do you just go with your gut, do you just go with what feels right? Do you just kind of go with what people around you tell you to do? What if you could take a shortcut to get out of difficulty? How about now? Maybe you're in difficulty right now. What if you could take a shortcut to get out of difficulty? Would you do it? How would you decide whether to do that or not? What if something was questionable, but it, it made the end result much easier? What if, what if the, the means weren't really godly but the end was justifiable what about that we all have that temptation right what would you do what if somebody was giving you a hard time or being mean to you would you stop it if you could knowing that you wouldn't be hurt even if it meant doing violence to the person or would you get away if, if you knew that was possible if you had a choice between the two somebody was being mean to you harming you would you and you had two guaranteed outcomes would you try to get away or would you hurt them what would you be tempted to do I know, I know me, I'm, I'm tempted not, not to take the, take the long way out. I'm tempted to take the quick way out. 
what if somebody was after you and trying to hunt you down to kill you? Sounds kind of dramatic, doesn't it? What if somebody's hunting you down, trying to kill you, and you had a choice of either getting away from them by hiding, or they just happened to be right in front of you, they didn't know it, and you were able to kill them, but not be prosecuted. What would you do? And knowing they would never hunt you again. In all those situations, how would you decide what would you do? How, how, what would guide your decisions? How would you make a decision? Would it be emotional? Would you do what's expedient? Would you do what other people suggested? Or would you think about where God was in the picture? And would you think about how you can respond in light of him? Well, in, in the scripture passage we're going to read from in 1 Samuel 24, David, he faced all of these dilemmas in reality. He, except the driving part, he wasn't driving anywhere, but he faced the dilemma of Saul, who was hunting David down, wanting to kill him relentlessly. So let's, let's read God's holy word in 1 Samuel 24. This is God's word. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of Engedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all of Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goat's rock. And he came to the sheepfolds, by the way, where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost part of the cave. And the men said of David, of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward, David's heart struck him. Because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe, he said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. Afterwards, David also rose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, My lord, the king! And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm. Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, the corner of your robe in my hand, for by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I've not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the Proverbs of the ancient says, out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. And whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog? After a flea? May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between you and me. And see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. As soon as David finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is this your voice, my son David? 
And David, and Saul lifted up his voice and wept. And he said to David, you are more righteous than I. You have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you've declared this day how you've dealt well with me, that you did not kill me when the Lord put, you into, put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now, behold, I know that you surely shall be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me, that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul. Then Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. This is God's word. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word that you give us examples like David. God, thank you that you have not only given us David as the king of your people then, but you have given us your son as the true King David. God, I pray that you would open up our 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 eyes to see you and behold you in your word. I pray that you would open up our hearts to hear from you, that you would enable us to respond to you in your word today. Lord, help us be attentive and worship you in your word this morning. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, have you ever had relational difficulties? I don't know anybody alive who's not had some kind of relational difficulties. If you've been alive for a little while, you've probably had some kind of conflict, some kind of relational problems this is really the the epitome of relational problems isn't David and Saul they've got relational issues don't they David he not only was Saul's servant and he saved the people of Israel from Goliath by he was the only one who volunteered he was brave and yet he goes and he saves Saul we know the story of David and Goliath he trusted in God and through his trust in God God used David to redeem the people of Israel so Saul should have been grateful to David And at first he kind of was, but then he became jealous of David. And so then eventually David marries Saul's daughter and he becomes Saul's son-in-law. But, you know, I think about in-law relationships, this is probably the worst. I don't know of anybody here whose in-laws actually are trying to hunt them down and kill them. If they are, see me later. We'll, We'll help you out. Call the police. But this is a bad relationship. This is, talk about being estranged from your family. Severe relational problems. Saul was willing to take David's life at all costs. For real. And he was pursuing him. He was rapidly seeking revenge like a madman. And he was dogged in the pursuit. And yet what we're going to see, what we saw in these first seven verses, was that, that David, he did not seek revenge. Even though Saul was trying to kill and take vengeance on David, David did not seek revenge. And so the first thing we see is that we see revenge is restrained. David restrains himself out of reverence for God. And so his revenge is restrained. In chapter 24, it ends with these troops of Saul and David. They were about to run into each other around this mountain. And yet suddenly somebody comes, a messenger to Saul, and they say, hey, the Philistines are coming. So Saul takes his army and he goes and pursues the Philistines. So this chapter opens up with Saul coming back. What's the first thing Saul does? He is so actively hating David. He goes and he pursues David. But David's got, if you remember, it said in chapter 23 and 24, he had about 600 men. Saul, he, he is, 
He's so paranoid, he takes a force of 3,000 men, five times more than what David has. And he is seeking to take David's life. And David, he must have heard that Saul was coming. He was in En Gedi. It's a little, um, now, nowadays it's a kibbutz. I got to visit there back in 94. And it's a, it's a little oasis in the desert right by the Dead Sea. And it's a, it's a perfect place. if you're. It's about 35 miles outside of Jerusalem. And it's a perfect place to go. And you have shelter. There's tons of caves in the area all around that area. And many of them can hold hundreds of men. And it's a perfect place as well to pasture a flock, especially if you're hiding out. But David and his men, they must have heard that Saul was coming. And so we find that David is hiding in a cave. But can you imagine if they pick the, this, this big cave and they go up in it and they go back into the recesses of the cave. And he probably has a watchman standing guard looking out to see what Saul's men will do. And his men kind of camp out in the valley down here. And yet Saul kind of peels off and he's this solitary figure. And Saul was very easily identifiable. It says he was a head and shoulders taller than anybody in Israel. So... Not only was he clothed in kingly robes, he was tall, he was imposing. So you see, all of a sudden, Saul's coming off on his own. And the watchman had to be thinking, what's going on? Oh my goodness, he's coming right towards us. Has he found us out? Is he, is he going to just call his troops over? Is he just being that brave? What is going on? And then it, then it tells the story where it says, no, Saul was coming to relieve himself. Um, the, the Hebrews actually, he's uncovering his feet. It's a euphemism for he's taking off his robes and getting ready to do business. And so, thankfully, we don't have a lot of graphic details like that in the Bible normally. But, but Saul is, he comes in and then he is completely exposed. He is completely alone. Um, he would have been on his own. He not, wouldn't have had a guard with him going off in the cave. Nobody would have seen what happened to him. He was completely alone. He was exposed. He was likely naked. And yet we see that it was divine providence that, you know, what are the odds of all the caves? There's a lot of caves around the area of Engedi. It's, it's pocked full of, uh, of caves. And yet what are the odds that he would pick the one cave that David was in? What are, what are those odds? And yet David and his men, they, they see Saul come in and his, his men say, you know, hey, this must be the day that the Lord has made. You know, you think of that song, this is the day, this is the day the Lord has made. And, and David's men are saying, you know, kind of singing in the shadows back there. And they, and Saul probably couldn't hear a thing, by the way, because he's got 3,000 men outside the cave and all the noises that go along with that. Might have been a, a, a brook. There's a little stream that runs down through the valley. So Saul is completely unaware that he has 600 men deep in the recesses of the cave behind him. And his men even seem to be using some biblical ideas to encourage David. Hey, you know what? Maybe the Lord is really delivering you to his hands. Now, they're, they're not quoting any passage in the Bible, but they're kind of twisting maybe some of the promises that, that God had given to David to deliver Goliath into David's hand. And they're saying, hey, maybe this is the day that God was delivered your enemy. Truly, surely God's put him into your hands. And so go and get him. Go and kill him. You know, after all... If he killed Saul, he and his men, they might not have to be on the run and hide anymore. His men are basically saying, you know, this is, this is obviously ordained by God to get you out of the situation simply and easily. Man, if you just take care of him, man, you have half his army's probably on your side anyway. You know, I can imagine what they were telling him behind the scenes and what a temptation that must have been for David. And they tell him, you know, do whatever seems good to you. And that, it kind of catches you if you're reading it. And you think about back in the book of Judges when it, 
when it talked about the, the downfall of the people of Israel was due to the fact that they, the people did whatever was right in their own eyes. And so David's men, subtly you hear little whispers of that. They're convincing David, do whatever seems right to you. And there's lack of an awareness of God. And so David, he responds to his men. And the question you're meant to, to kind of wonder is, what, should a follower of God do whatever seems right to him? Should a, should a follower of God just do whatever seems good to him? Or should there be some more thought that goes into a decision like that? Well, David, he responds to his men, and he gets up, and he goes over, and at some point, he, he doesn't decide to kill Saul. He, he cuts off a corner of Saul's robe. Now, you have to know that a robe represented uh, a man's kingly rule. It would have represented his place of authority. It would have represented his position. And so when David was kind of cutting off a piece of his robe, it was symbolically like he was cutting off Saul's kingdom and taking it to himself in Mesopotamia. That was, a robe was often used to signify a kingdom. And cutting of the robe was, was a practice used to take away a kingdom. And so David maybe was, had, had that in his mind. We don't know for sure. Maybe he remembered earlier when Saul ripped away Samuel's cloak and Samuel said today the kingdom's been ripped from you for whatever reason David goes up and he cuts a piece of Saul's robe off and then he goes back and whatever the purpose was it says that his 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 heart struck him his heart struck him what does that mean it meant that his conscience bothered him he immediately experienced conviction he knew that what he'd done was wrong now you got to think for a second, well, why was that wrong? It was just, isn't he just taunting Saul? Isn't he just showing Saul, I could have killed you, but I didn't? Well, maybe, maybe. But David knew that even in that small act of rebellion, even the small act of mockery and defamation of Saul's kingdom, it was ungodly. He, he knew that even in that small symbolic thing, he was actually positioning himself against the man whom God had put in place to lead Israel. And he immediately experienced conviction. Have you ever had a time, not when you cut off a robe of somebody, but when you've done something seemingly small and, and you realize that, wait a minute, I, that was wrong. I did that with the wrong motive. I didn't do that for the right reason. I, I wasn't trying to honor God. and I, I was just trying to, to be funny or I was just trying to tease somebody else or maybe I was just trying to be clever. But I, but I was unloving, I was unkind. Well, David, he was convicted by his conscience that day, and I think the reader's meant to consider why. You know, Saul was unjustly pursuing David, wasn't he? Didn't David have the right to defend himself by killing Saul before Saul could kill him? Wouldn't Saul have killed David? Right? What would you have done? I've been pretty darn tempted to kill him. As awful as that sounds, as evil as that is, that's where my heart probably would have been. So he didn't kill Saul. And he tells us a little bit while later why. But I think David was convicted by that God, and it tells us in these verses that he says, I, why, you know, why would I put my hand out against the Lord's anointed? He was aware that, that even though God had prophesied that, that he was, he was going to put David forward as the king, he already anointed David as the king, even though that was yet to come, he, he knew the path that God had him on he knew it was wrong to kind of take hold of the reins himself and kind of make it happen to kind of help God along. He, he knew that he was not the one to, 
to put out his hand even against God's anointed who was sinning because he was kind of putting his hand out against God and saying, God, I know that you said that one day I'll be king, but I don't trust your timing. I don't trust your way. I don't trust your means. And this doesn't feel so good for me now. So surely this can't be the Lord, right? Have you ever had a situation like that where you thought, God, I know you called me to this thing, but right now I don't understand why it's difficult. I don't understand why it's hard. I don't understand what your timing. And I kind of just want to take the shortcut around things. I know I've had that temptation. And if you haven't yet, I'm sure you will. But David knew that God had said in Deuteronomy, vengeance is mine. That he, that said, he knew that the Lord said he'd vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants. When he sees their power is gone, as it tells us in Deuteronomy 32. God said in the same chapter, I'll take my vengeance on my adversaries and repay those who hate me. David knew better. That's why his conscience bothered him. Later on, there was a guy named Asaph who was going to be David's musical director in Psalm 75, 7. He says, it's God who executes judgment. It's God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. David knew better, and he was immediately convicted that he should have been trusting in God and God's timing and God's vengeance and God's ability to protect and preserve and care for him. And thankfully, he actually changed, and he, he did. He immediately was convicted and responded. He didn't, not only did he not kill Saul, he responded and, and repented. That's what we see is David's repentant actions here. He didn't do, if you remember, there's, a, there's an old play by a guy named Shakespeare. It's called Macbeth. And in, in Macbeth, there's this, this trio who prophesies that Macbeth would one day have the throne from King Duncan of Scotland. But Lady Macbeth kind of thinks that we kind of have to help it along. We kind of have to help this thing come about. And, and, and they did. And they killed Duncan. And and Lady Macbeth is plagued, feeling like she always has blood on her hands. And um, it's a good illustration of how really taking things into our own hands, it doesn't work out so well. We can really trust God's providence, his timing, his provision. Now, I'm not saying that Shakespeare was trying to intend to, to communicate that. But, but David, he ended up not giving in, even though he partially did. But, but what is Israel's hope when they, they have the story of their king, their anointed, once anointed, their future king, when they read about this story, can they really trust him? Can they really hope in this kind of guy? Well, partially they can. But David, he's kind of flawed throughout. He is better than all the other kings, but he's not the best king ever. Well, as believers, we know that Jesus, the son of David, he... He never gave in to temptations to take vengeance. And boy, that is Israel's hope. That's our hope. You know, Jesus must have been tempted to call down a thousand angels to execute judgment on all those around him. And yet we read in the New Testament as we've been reflecting back on Easter about how he didn't even open up his mouth like a lamb led to the slaughter. He didn't defend himself. The ultimate, perfect king, Jesus well, in verse 6, David said he, he, he was convicted. He shouldn't put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and, because in doing that, it was like he's putting his hand out against God. There's a, there's a, a little aside. 
I think it might be helpful for some, some people who've, there's just common bad theology. This is not the main part of the text. It's a little extra. Uh, there's this bad theology that goes around that says that the modern day Lord's anointed is, is a pastor's or leaders in the church. That's nonsense, by the way. Um, the Lord's anointed was, King David in the time was the, the ordained leader of the people of Israel. And then after that was replaced by other men. But Jesus is the ultimate Lord's anointed. And so when we, when we, here, don't put out your hand against the Lord's anointed. It's, it's putting out your hand against Jesus is what the fulfillment of that is. It's not, it's not pastors, and if you've ever heard that weird teaching before, I remember I grew up hearing that, that nonsense. Um, Jesus is the ultimate anointed one. That's who David points forward to. That's who David looks forward to. And so in David, knowing not to put his hand out against the Lord's anointed, it's actually for us to see that we too, if we're not in reverence of God, we can be tempted to put out our hand against the Lord's anointed, disregarding Really what Jesus has done. Well, David was convicted because in defiling Saul's robes, he was defiling the man who had been put in place by God. And we see in verse 7, it says that he persuaded his men and he did not permit them or allow his men to attack Saul. Instead, we see in verses 8 to 15, the second thing we see is that we see this reverent trust. We see David was reverently trusting in God. As impossible as that might seem, it's, it's already astounding that David didn't take Saul's life. I think I might have. And yet, not only did he not take his life, and he, he restrains his men, it says that he, he persuaded them. Now, that language is too tame. The, the original language in the Hebrew is actually he tore them down. He had to tear them apart to keep them off of Saul. Because why? He was, he was reverently trusting in God. He was aware of God in the situation. And so he was reverently trusting God. Instead of appealing to a human method, he was trusting in God's judgment. Instead of bowing to the fear of man, he ultimately bowed to the fear of the Lord. He didn't bow to fearing his men like Saul had and failed. He said, I'm gonna, I'm gonna fear God and his anointed one. No, you cannot harm him. So verse eight, though, we see this reverent trust played out. And think about how dangerous it must have been for David, right? 3,000 men are right in the valley. David's probably up just a little ways above them. And David, he didn't have to reveal himself if he cut off the robe. He could have done that much later or sent sent it via messenger. But yet David, he comes out of the cave. And boy, what bravery, boldness, what what trust that displayed. David trusting in God and saying, you know what? I'm going to take a risk and I'm going to trust in God. And so David comes out of the cave I can't imagine doing what David did. And he was contrite. He didn't have to come out like this, but he did. And he bows down to Saul, and he acknowledges Saul as his king. Not only with his words, but his actions as well. I can't imagine bowing down to my father-in-law who's hunting me down and coming out and saying, you know, oh, father, I've sinned against you. And yet David comes out and he bows down, he prostrates himself in a place of humility before Saul. And then he comes out and he says, Saul, why, why are you listening to these people who tell you that, that I, I want to take your life? He says, you know, I, surely, I, I've got your robe here, by the way. I could have killed you, but I didn't. I'm innocent. And I'm not only am I innocent, I'm like, a, I'm like a dead dog. I've got no bite anymore. I don't even have any bark. I'm, I'm just a dead dog to you. Why do you come out against me? I'm just like a flea. I can, you know, I can barely threaten you. I'm a flea. 
I might, I might impose a little teeny bite, maybe a whelp, but it's going to go away. I'm, a, I'm, I'm like a dead dog. I'm a flea. I'm nothing to you. Why do you pursue me? And he called Saul his father, probably not just because he was his father-in-law, but because it was a term of respect. And I can imagine as David's holding up that, that, that robe, you just picture it in your mind. David's holding this robe, and, and Saul is a, across maybe a hundred yards, I don't know, 50 yards, 100 yards away, and, and he goes, see, I've got your robe. And I can imagine Saul looking down and, and seeing the corner of his robe is gone. I, I can't begin to fathom how Saul must have felt, you know, both embarrassed, afraid, ashamed, relieved, all the above. And it says that Saul... Saul wept in response. But before he allowed Saul to respond, David appeals, not to Saul, but he appeals to God. You see, it showed that he was reverently trusting God even then in his appeal to Saul. He said, why do you, why do you pursue me? And he says, you know, God, may God judge between you and me. You know, if, if, if in a courtroom, the judge is the one who, who convicts one and lets another go, who awards one and makes the other pay. He says, you know what, I don't even presume. I don't even presume here to, to convict you. May God judge between you and me. And he appeals to the Lord to avenge him against Saul. And then he promises something. You know, Saul... Saul must have been dumbfounded. It says that he, 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 he wept in response. See the exact, exact words say. He says, Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He says, you are more righteous than I, for you've repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. Saul had not behaved righteously with David. But David's not returned evil for evil. Instead, David's returned mercy and kindness for Saul instead of evil. How do we respond when we're opposed, when we have difficulty? Do we restrain ourselves? Do we, are we tempted to take vengeance and revenge on people? And I know I am. When our spouse does something to us, are we tempted to get angry back? I know I, I'm not just tempted when somebody offends us, are we tempted to take our own rights up? Are we tempted to kind of to make sure that we protect ourselves in our own name and our own good? Or do we reverently bow to God and, and say, God, I'm going to trust you no matter what? Boy, this is a convicting passage for us as believers. Obviously, David's words brought conviction to Saul, and it's clear this, that that. That God had delivered Saul into David's hands, yet David acted righteously. So what we see, the last main idea that we see is that in verses 16 to 22 is we see a mostly repentant and then merciful response. The mostly repentant part is Saul. He, we see a mostly repentant Saul. And then in David we see a merciful response. We see a very merciful response in David. Saul, he's mostly repentant. He says, you know, David, you're more righteous than I. It's kind of an under, understatement, right? Saul has only been unrighteous to David. It's not like he's saying, hey, you know what? You're more righteous than I am. Uh, no, Saul's not righteous at all. But he's like, Saul, David, you're, you've been more righteous than I have. Oh, thanks, Saul. That's really humble of you. 
And he does something surprising, though. He is mostly repentant, and he does something surprising. He blesses David, and he appeals to the Lord to reward David for what he's done for Saul and sparing his life, and this kind of foreboding about what's going to come, that soon God would give David the kingdom in God's timing. And then Saul makes an appeal to David, but this is strange because Saul is the king, right? But he makes an appeal to David as a person in, of a low position would to a king. And Saul makes an appeal to David kind of transferring the kingdom in, in a sense or the rights to be king. And he says, David, would you swear that you won't kill my offspring, that you'll preserve my name when I'm dead, when you've taken over? Would you not do what's common for all the kings of Mesopotamia in that time, which would be to wipe out any opposition, to wipe out any, any possible inheritance of the throne? Would you, would you not wipe out my name? Would you spare my inheritance? Would you keep my inheritance? And then the passage, it closes kind of oddly, doesn't it? It closes and it says that, you know, Saul's come out with 3,000 men and now he asks that, David, would you spare my, life, my, my name? And then it says that Saul leaves and he goes on his way. And they just, they're done. They're done with that portion of pursuing David. Now, unfortunately, it's not for good. Saul, his repentance is not true repentance. He again sins and again comes back and again pursues David. But what does David do? David lets him go. But not only that, David did something else surprising. And I wonder how I would have reacted David does something that's shocking. David says, basically, you know, not, not in the Hebrew, but sure, I, I swear I'll, I'll spare your name. This is David agreed to spare. David swore this to Saul. Now, a swear back then it was, it was a binding oath. And so David makes an oath, a binding promise, just like he had promised to Jonathan to not wipe out his father's house. So David makes a promise, but he has no reason to make this promise to Saul, does he? Saul's not giving him anything in return. Saul Saul's doesn't have anything to promise David. If David does this, then Saul will do this. David doesn't have any reason to give Saul what he wants, but David here is extremely merciful, and he swore to Saul without any reason to swear to Saul, without any reason to show mercy to Saul. David shows mercy to Saul. I can't believe the example of David in this passage. He, he, he's restrained by reverence for God. Not only that, he obediently trusts God in, in, in one of the most trying times. Even when it seems like he's got a really easy way out, that would be okay. He won't get in trouble for it. And all his friends are telling me it's okay. They're even kind of quoting a little bit of scripture in their own way to tell him it's okay. And they're going to support him and everything's going to be fine. After all, he's going to be the king, so... He won't be in trouble, right? He's got the easiest way out. But I'm amazed that David doesn't take the easy way out. He instead thinks, okay, wait a minute. Where's God in this picture? How can I honor him? So he's not only restrained, he's, he's trusting in God. He's obedient. He humbles himself in the face of his enemies. And he doesn't take revenge. And instead of all those things, he responds in mercy. What a great example. Actually, in, in 2 Samuel verse, uh, chapter 9, you can read about how David kept his promise. There was um, a civil war continued on, and 
all of Saul's other sons kind of wiped each other out and then got wiped out by David's men. But yet there was one kid who in the this civil war, Ishbosheth, he was the son of Saul. He was trying to take over for a time. He was going to kill all of Saul's other um, descendants. And he goes to kill Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth. Sorry, Mephibosheth. It's not like a, a normal English word. And he was going to kill him. And the nurse picks him up and runs with him and drops him as a baby. And he's lame. I mean, what an awful story, right? Mephibosheth, he's lame. He can't walk. He can't do for himself. He can't earn a living. He can't till the fields. He can't do anything. And he's, he's beholding to one of his father's servants. And that's how he's living. And, and eventually, in 2 Samuel 9, David, he's trying to figure out, hey, I need to be faithful to my covenant, my promise. I, I want to protect the descendants of Saul. And so he says, is there any descendants of Saul? He asked the servant Ziba. And he says, well, yes, there's Mephibosheth. And so David calls Mephibosheth to his presence, and I can imagine how scared Mephibosheth must have been. He probably didn't know about this oath, and it would have been very common to be killed. And so he brings lame Mephibosheth into his presence, and then he says, Mephibosheth, not only am I going to give you back all the lands of your father, restore everything to you that, that you never really had, but I'm not only going to give that back to you, I'm going to invite you to come to my table. You, you can have a seat at my table and at the king's table, and I'm always going to provide for you. You're always going to eat of my goodness. Wow. Boy, and it just makes you respect and love David even more, right? What? Mercy. David responded mercifully. He kept his promise, and he invites the lame Mephibosheth to come to his table and says, you'll always eat at the king's table. You'll always share the bounty. And not only that, you can have your own lands and any of the prophets you can keep. So how are we to respond to all of this? How are we to respond to this passage? You know, what if this passage is not just about David and Saul, but it's also meant for all of God's people for all time as well? What if? Just what if? You know, it seems very clearly and plainly written to us as an example, right? I mean, obviously you can get that. It's really straightforward. It's all there. David, he serves as a good example for us. He's compelling, he's convicting example, what it looks like to be restrained by reverence for God, what it, what it looks like to have reverence for God's anointed one, even the most tempting of times. We can see an example of what to do when we face undressed treatment at the hands of other people, right? We can relate to all that. All that is valid and applicable and good, actually, for us to take away. David didn't take the easy way out of conflict. That's good. We need to hear that. He restrained himself out of reverence for God and the Lord's anointed. He humbles himself obediently. He responds obediently and mercifully even though Saul didn't deserve it. And that's an example for how do we relate to other people who don't deserve mercy. How do, how do I be a peacemaker, respond in humility, not return evil, I mean evil for evil, but good for evil. So there's all those things we can take away with us. Gives us an example of what it looks like to reverently trust and honor God. And he honors Saul as king, even though he's rightly king already, and Saul doesn't deserve honor. So it gives us an example of how we can honor government and how we can honor those who are in power who actually don't deserve honor out of deference and reverence to God. That applies, especially right now. And then we can see that even though God has called him to something, he doesn't try to grasp and take a hold of it and make it happen on his own, like Abraham did with Hagar, like Jacob did with his father pretending to be Esau, trying to take the promise of God. 
Yet David doesn't do that. He's an example of saying, I'm going to trust in God, even if I can make it out easily and I can see the means. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to trust in God's means and his scripture, what he's revealed. I'm going to trust in God's word that God's going to work it out. It's good examples. Those are all good things for us, right? I think we're meant to take that away. There's no, no, no downplaying that. And if those are convicting things for you, may you be convicted and respond in faith. But there's something else here. We, we, we know that David, he acts as a pointer to the ultimate chosen one, the ultimate anointed one, Jesus. See, he, and we're, seek, we're to seek to emulate the example of, ultimately, of Jesus, follow him as his disciples. It means to be a disciple, it means to be a follower of Jesus, the son of David. And, and we know that it's good to follow David as he followed God, like the apostle Paul. He encouraged people, he says, follow me as I follow Christ. And so is it good in the ways that David exemplified his, the one he pointed to, Jesus Christ, to follow David? Yes, that's good. But, but what, and we, we need that, don't we? We need examples. We need examples like that. Real world scenarios to see how does reverence for God play out. But there's something more. What if this passage serves to reveal something about our relationship with God? You see, what if the whole Bible's narrative, and I, and maybe this is not a what if, this is the entire Bible's narrative is all about how God relates to man and how man relates to God. It's how do we have a relationship with the one true living God. And so the Bible reveals to us how God relates to us and how do we come to him. So knowing that Jesus is, is called the son of David repeatedly throughout the New Testament, it should, 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 some antennas should kind of go up for us when we read about David. Not all the time, but sometimes. Often David will point us forward to the fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Now, sometimes when David fails, it's, he's not pointing forward to Jesus. He's pointing forward for a need for Jesus, the one who never fails. Israel looked in hope to David to be fair, faithful, and he, he was a lot of the time, but he wasn't always faithful. Remember Bathsheba, who's gonna, we're going to read about in 2 Samuel at some point. But in this story, where David shows mercy we're meant to see that Jesus is the one who's ultimately showed mercy. He didn't give in to temptation to begin with. When David was mostly gracious, Jesus has revealed, it says that, you know, grace and truth are revealed in Jesus Christ. Jesus reveals what true grace, true mercy looks like. Where David showed some mercy, David, Jesus was perfectly merciful. You know, I was wondering as I was, I was prepping for this morning, thinking, okay, I wonder how many people read this story thinking that we're David. I did. <laughs> when I read this story, I can, I can identify with David. I need to be like David. I want to be like David. And, and yet and we're meant to respond in some way like that. But we're also meant to see something else that really in this story, more often than not, we're more like Saul. We're really more like Saul. After all, what if we were the ones who were the anointed one's enemies and, and really God's enemy. What if for a moment, what if we thought about the fact that aren't we the ones who unrighteously pursued our own ways and served our own ends and sought to protect our own kingdom and our own name? And isn't that what we do all the time? Don't we doggedly pursue our own glory when we fear other people's opinions of us, try to be self-promoting? Aren't we kind of doing what Saul's doing here? Don't we often seek our own good ahead of other people's good? 
Don't we often seek to take vengeance? Don't we often act like Saul? Kind of making our own kingdom, making a name for ourselves, pursuing our own way, seeking our own ends. And if that's not you now, it has been you, it's been all of us, we've all been Saul. Yeah, Scripture says we've all gone astray, we've all pursued our own way, we've all been like sheep going our own way, we've all fallen short, we've all sinned against God, we've all been God's enemies. And yet it says, while we were still enemies, what does it say? While we were still enemies like Saul against the anointed one, Christ didn't just bow down. He bowed his head down in death. He died for us. The ultimate son of David. What if we were the ones, metaphorically speaking, naked and exposed like Saul, alone in a cave, and deserving of God's vengeance and wrath? And what if he didn't take that wrath out on us? What if we were Saul, we were the ones spared? What if you are Saul, like me? And God spares us because of his anointed son of David. What if we the ones like Saul, we didn't deserve mercy, but yet God stays his hand because his true anointed one bore the wrath and separation and isolation and humiliation and punishment that we deserve. You see, all of us have lived for ourselves. All of us have been unrighteous. All of us have been unmerciful. And all of us have had a half-hearted repentance like Saul and said, Jesus, you're more righteous than I. When really we have no righteousness of our own. And half of our repentance is like that. I think all of us can identify more than once with Saul that we, we have tried to prop up our own failing kingdom. We're doomed, heading down to the grave with our kingdom in a, in a sort of death spiral, trapped in this cave of rebellion, and yet God mercifully lets us go. Remember after Jesus was betrayed, I referenced it earlier in, in Matthew 26, um, Jesus, um, and, and after he was betrayed, he's in the garden and they're coming to get him and Peter draws his sword and he cuts off the ear of the high priest's servant and, and, and Jesus turns, he turns to Peter and says, do you think that I can't appeal to my father? He says, and he will at once send more than 12 legions of angels He says, but how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? He was the ultimate son of David who was not taking revenge. That's what he was saying. Look, I could take revenge if I wanted, but that's not what I'm here for. I'm not here to take revenge. I'm here to deliver. I'm here to give myself as a sacrifice for many. Instead of taking revenge, what did Jesus say? Well, on the cross, he says, Father forgive them for they don't know what they do imagine that you're Saul because we all are not only did Jesus not take revenge on us but he he says I'm here to give my life up to actually die to take it to the uttermost end not only that in the process of dying I I forgive you I'm dying for you already and I'm dying for your forgiveness I'm showing your mercy but I'm also giving you forgiveness and freedom And then think about it. He's the ultimate merciful son of David. He not only forgives us, but he grants, it says, grace upon grace. And that's what David's doing here, right? He's he's granting grace upon grace. Not only he spares life, he's granting the grace of sparing his name. 
Jesus, he says, he, we, we receive grace upon grace from Jesus Christ. He's the epitome of giving us undeserved mercy. In his death, he's, he's also the ultimate picture of reverently trusting in God. David reverently trusted in God and he obeyed. Jesus ultimately reverently trusted in God and obeyed even to the point of death. And then he bows his head and even in death he says, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit, ultimately trusting God in his final breath. Because you know what? We don't, we don't trust God like we should. We don't obey God to the end. We're not faithful. We're, we're half-hearted in our repentance at best. And yet our hope is in the ultimate King David, the ultimate Jesus, the son of David. And but God, who was rich in mercy, set his affection on us, and he so loved us that he sent his only son. And the son laid down his life for us, and that now we, the unrighteous Saul, the unrighteous sinner, we go free for no reason You know, we once were insanely opposed to God, and yet we go free. That is the motivation for us. You know, the the Bible's not about moralism. It does call us to respond, calls us to obey, calls us to act out in reverence of God, but it doesn't do that without giving us the means and ability and motivation to do that. All those calls to follow the example of David, yes, they're good, but we can only, only do that if you truly understand that you've been forgiven of everything you've ever done against the anointed one. And you've been let go and you've been set free and he's shown you mercy and he's showered you with kindness upon kindness, grace upon grace, forgiven you in your half-hearted repentance because you keep coming back doing the same thing just like I do. And yet he says, no, you're, you're free. But not only that, I love the story of Mephibosheth. Why? Because it's a story of a lame man being brought into the king's table. And isn't that what happens to us? What, is, what does Jesus do? He comes to heal the lame, to, to set the captives free, to, to open blind eyes. But, but remember David's promise to Saul was to swear that he would uphold his name? Jesus does that perfectly. You see, as we trust in Jesus, it says that our names are written in the Lamb's book of life. An everlasting book that that lasts forever. He carries on our name forever in his book. He keeps us. He holds our inheritance and he preserves our inheritance, not because we deserve it, but because we do not deserve it and we trust on his deserving. Boy, isn't that wonderful? He has brought we who were lame into his presence and he says, you know what? Not only am I going to bring you into my presence, unlike Mephibosheth, he promises that one day all these physical elements will be healed, but he says, you know, I'm going I'm to give you your inheritance, the inheritance that belongs to me. And then not only that, I'm going to make you eat at my table forever. You can enjoy my bounty, my provision, my kingdom, all the fruits that I've earned are yours in Jesus Christ. So now if we trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, we can know that we've been given a new heart, new desires to love God and to live for him. And it's as we experience his grace and mercy and forgiveness that we can then in turn say, okay, you know what? I can now go forgive other people 
I don't know how David did it, but he did it by the Holy Spirit. So now by the Holy Spirit, he's made me alive. I want to extend the same mercy and grace and kindness and forgiveness and not take up my own revenge, not take the easy way out and trust in God. I want to do all those things, not to earn favor, but because God has showered me with favor, I want to do those things in response. And now I have the Holy Spirit, the same Spirit that David had, that the son of David had, has been given to us to empower us, enable us to to show others mercy and grace and forgiveness because of Jesus' ultimate forgiveness. You know, we're all like the lame children of Saul. We need the mercy of the king. The good news is the King Jesus gives it to us freely. He swears by us with no reason to do that. He has no reason to swear that he'll keep our name. He does it because of his own kindness, his own mercy, his own goodness. It's like David did at the end of this this account. You're meant to think, how in the world could David do that? How could Jesus swear to us? Not because of anything we've done, good or bad, but because he loved us. That is astounding. And he he gives this to us freely. So have the band go ahead and come up for a moment. We're gonna respond in song. But let's close before we we stand and and sing. I wanna close hearing the voice of Jesus Jesus doesn't just let us go away free. He welcomes us to come to him. At the very end of this grand story of the Bible, you know, we we close the end of our account with David giving mercy and swearing to uphold a name and letting Saul go free. That's good news, but the even better news at at the end of the story of the Bible, God's book about how we relate to him, it says the very last chapter, Revelation 22, verse 16 Hear the son of David, and it has that in the passage as well. He says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches, for this church. I am the root and descendant of David. What does he mean? I'm the the one who initiated David, who brought him about, and I'm also his descendant. The bright morning star the light of the world. And here's what Jesus says to you. Just like Mephibosheth, but even better. He says, the spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. And let the one who desires to take the water of life without price come. Amen? Well, let's sing. So you have to stand, if you will, with me. And let's sing about who Jesus is. And, and as, as we're getting ready to sing, I just encourage you to, to thank God for your deliverance and mercy and grace. Like he's delivered Saul, he's delivered you even more. Amen.